Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Over the last uh, six to eight weeks in the fourth to sixth grade Sunday school class, maybe two months, we've been going over favorite psalms, and not all of them, but uh, favorite psalms uh, that have been special in my heart. Let me just say this, all 150 of them are special uh, and uh, inspired by God, but just ones that, have, uh, that stick out many times. And uh, the last two weeks... We've been looking at a trilogy of psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51. These fit in a category that are called the penitential psalms, uh, psalms of repentance, and in particular, repentance in David's life from his sin with Bathsheba. They teach us how to deal with our sin, how to handle our sin God's way. If we don't handle our sin God's way, it will destroy us. But as we've heard this morning sang in the different songs, God has made wonderful provision for us how to deal with our sin. Through the work of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the price has been paid. So that I don't have to be in debt for my sin anymore. Because Jesus paid it all. And on a hill far away, he paid that price, that rugged cross that was the most offensive symbol of crime and of violence and of execution in the day that Jesus lived. But the work that he did on that cross was so powerful that what was originally a sign of shame is now a sign of victory. That old rugged cross. Psalm 32, 38, and 51 are psalms that really record for us three different aspects of David's getting right with God. Psalm 51 is David's confession. Have mercy upon me, Lord. Blot out mine iniquity. Purge me with hyssop after his sin with Bathsheba had been exposed. Psalm 38, even though they move kind of backwards, Psalm 38 is David's description of the conviction of sin that he dealt with, the emotional, spiritual, mental, and even physical consequences of trying to hide his sin for a full year. Psalm 32 is David teaching us. In Psalm 51, he said, Lord, when I get right with you, I'll teach transgressors thy way. Psalm 32 is after he's gotten right, after he's recorded the consequences of the conviction of sin, in Psalm 32, David says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no Guile. When I kept silence, David said in Psalm 32, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Then he goes on to say, but thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And so a tremendous trilogy, but we've been teaching those three psalms to the young people in the fourth to sixth grade Sunday school class. But do you know that 70% of the Bible is narrative or story? How many of you like a good story? Okay. I asked the kids in the Sunday school class this morning, I said, why is a story so important? And it was interesting. They started saying, well, it helps you. It draw. One of the girls, a little girl said this. She said, it draws you in. Now, just as a side note, don't you parents go home and in, investigate your kids today. This was kind of humorous to me. Today was my one-year anniversary of teaching the fourth to the sixth grade Sunday school class. 
And those kids threw a party for me today, a one-year anniversary. <laughs> one of the little girls said in the class, she goes, we need to do this every Sunday so we don't have to have a lesson. <laughs> you know what I told her? I said, when I was your age, I'd have felt the exact same way. But I asked him, I said, what, what about stories? Why are stories so amazing? Why would God, in inspired scripture, make 70% of it narrative or story? Stories help things stick, don't they? Stories take principles and doctrine and the teaching of scripture, and they show us how it works in real life. There are parallels and applications that we can see. And, and the New Testament writers understood that. They said these things were written aforetime for our learning. That we, as we learn from these stories and the principles that God illustrates in these stories, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We get help from the narrative. And I love a good story. But i got to tell you, years ago... Uh, as a family, we want, some of you have heard of Sight and Sound, where the Bible comes to life, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Branson, Missouri, and they act out stories of the Bible, live professional actors, drama on a stage. It's pretty amazing to see. But i got to tell you, years ago, I went and we saw the story of Samson. There's a lot of humor in the stage production of Samson's life there. But I was really disappointed when we left. You know Why? I told my families we got in the van. I said, I was really disappointed by that. And they, why? And for entertainment value, they had added humor. But I got to tell you, folks, there's nothing funny about Samson's story. There's nothing funny about Samson's story. The backdrop for Psalm 32, 38, and 51 is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I want you to just notice one verse to begin. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse number 27. The very last statement of the verse, not even the whole verse. 2 Samuel 11 and verse number 27. Notice it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I want us to take a little bit of time this morning and consider the story of David's sin. The backdrop between Psalm 32, 38, and 51. Father, help us in our time together this morning. Lord, this story is familiar for many of us, but the last couple of weeks, I believe you've been impressing my heart to bring it here from the fourth to sixth grade classroom into this auditorium for all of us. And Lord, I pray that you would fasten things in our minds today that would move us all the more to being a holy people, free from sin, understanding the blessedness, the, the flourishing that comes to life when we deal with our sin your way. Thank you for the wonderful provision that you have made available through your character, through the finished work of Christ on the cross. I thank you that you are a God of holiness that cannot tolerate sin. And yet I thank you, too, that you're a God of mercy and forgiveness and pardon. And all of those attributes, your mercy, your grace, your holiness, all of those attributes are in perfect balance in you. So God help us, I pray this morning. 
in the remainder of our time. In Jesus' name, amen. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The first thought is this, David, David, the hero of Israel, David, the son of Bethlehem, David, the one who's the subject of so much prophecy yet to be fulfilled, David, what a success story from rags to riches, a shepherd boy on the backside of the Judean hillside who would be raised to be the king of Israel. To this day, a star called by his name still is emblazoned on the flag of the nation of Israel. David. David, a man who was a great success, a man who would unite a divided kingdom after the failed reign of King Saul. David, a man who was a spiritual man, a man who grew in his worship, as a boy and as a young man, as he played his harp and watched over his sheep outside of Bethlehem. David, who would grow so close to the Lord that the scripture calls him the man after God's own heart. David, a man who at previous times in his life had demonstrated great sensitivity to sin. When we were in Israel a few a couple of months ago, we had the opportunity to go where the cave of En Gedi used to be. Sometime back, the cave caved in. But it is the spot where David would have been hiding. And it was a massive cave. You could see how big it was and how easy it would have been. When I had read the story before, I'm like, how could David hide? King Saul come in and David could cut the hem of his garment off, and Saul would leave and never knew what happened. But after I saw the spot, I'm like, okay, I can see how that would have happened. A man who was so sensitive in his spirituality, his sensitivity to the work of God, the plan of God, that when he's hiding against the walls of a cave and King Saul comes in, his own men say to him, David's own men say, behold, behold, the day that God has appointed this man who's your enemy, now is your opportunity. Take him out, Saul, or David. David can't do it. Cuts the hem of his garment off. And the Bible said that when he did that, his heart smote him. A simple act of cutting off with his knife a swatch of cloth from Saul's garment, his heart smote him. A man of sensitivity. A man who would write in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. A man who would write in Psalm 30, 139, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A man of sensitivity, David, a man of spirituality, a man of great success, a man of the scriptures. And yet, the Bible says in verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Brings me to a second thought, what I call the deed. What was it that David had done? Chronologically, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is David at the midway point of his ministry, his reign. He would have been approximately 50 years old. Remember, he began ruling Israel 
when he was 30. He would die when he was 70, 40 years. This is halfway through. He had had great success to this point. But the Bible tells us in the beginning of chapter number 11 that it was the time that kings go forth to battle, springtime, and yet David sent Joab and the armies of Israel to besiege the city of Rabbah of the Ammonites 40 miles east across the Jordan River. David sent Joab and the armies, and David tarried still at Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why David tarried at Jerusalem, but we know this. If he would have been where he should have been, chapter 11 would not have happened. I don't know what the excuse may have been. Maybe David even thought he had a legitimate excuse. You know what? I'm just tired of fighting. Maybe I need a break. Whatever it was, David stayed home. The agitation maybe of the burdens, the anxieties of being king, whatever it was, robbed his sleep from him at night. The Bible tells us that he couldn't sleep and he got up in the night and went out on the porch or the roof, the veranda of his house. We were there where his old castle would have been. The southeastern side of the modern-day city of Jerusalem is to this day still called the old city of David. It was amazing how many things became clear to us as we were there seeing the chronology and the topography. And where David's castle would have been, where it stood, now there's city over it and they're literally excavating under the city where David's castle was but it's still a high point. And I could see as I stood there as a part of our tour, I could see how David could have looked down over the city and a lot of the city would have been to the south. He would have had the bird's eye view of many, many houses. And as he goes out, he sees Bathsheba bathing. The Bible acknowledges that she was beautiful to look upon. How many times as I've read that story have I wanted to step into the story and say, David, stop. We have the benefit of knowing how it's going to turn out. Let me tell you something. We don't have to wonder how sin is going to turn out. Sin, the wages of sin is death. When sin is finished, it bringeth forth How many times I've wanted to step into the story and say, David, don't go any further. I've read the next chapter. I've read the rest of the book. You don't want what's coming. You know the story. David would call a servant and inquire, who is that woman? The servant would tell him that is Bathsheba, The wife, that should have stopped him. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's own son Solomon would write in Proverbs chapter 4, Enter not into the path of the wicked, go not in the way of evil men, avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. I heard a message years ago on the six warning signs. David just kept blowing through one warning sign after another. It's the same as going around a barricade that says bridge out ahead and putting the pedal to the metal. And David went through one sign after another. That's the wife. The Bible tells us, as you know, he sent for her. He took her. He lay with her. 
She was purified from her uncleanness. She cleaned up after the act of immoral activity, went back to her house, and in a short time recognized she was with child. She sends word to David. Verse number five, I am with child. The bluntness of the narrative of Scripture should just cause all of us to sit up and pay attention. It's a testimony to the callousness of David's heart that it's almost like he knew what he would do next. As soon as he gets the word from Bathsheba, I am with child, verse number six, and David sent unto Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, if you go read 2 Samuel 23, you'll find that Uriah was one of David's 37 mighty men. Bathsheba was his wife, and she was also the granddaughter of one of David's closest counselors, a man named Ahithophel. David tells Joab, send me Uriah. Uriah, one of his best soldiers, one of his elite guard, if you would. One of his mighty men comes home. And David, in a manipulative, lying sort of way, says, how goes the battle, Uriah? gets a report, says, listen, you're home for a couple of days, take it easy, go home, spend the night with your wife, get some rest at home. And Uriah left, and the Bible tells us that David sent a mess of meat with him home to just kind of soften everything. But Uriah was a man of integrity. And Uriah said, I'm not going home. On maps, some Bible maps, they have a spot called the House of the Mighty Men, which was right next to David's castle. It was where the servants, the soldiers of David's men, when they were on duty, slept. The Bible tells us that Uriah went there and slept in the barracks, if you would, instead of going home to Bathsheba. David found out about it the next day and had a meal with Uriah and got Uriah drunk still trying to get him to go home to his wife to try to cover his sin. My brother-in-law, Matt, and my sister, Naomi Shields, one of their boys has the middle name of Uriah. Because they are cross-cultural, uh, they have to have names that go well in English and in Spanish. And so the middle name of one of their sons is Uriah. Somebody asked him one time, why would you name your son Uriah? And my brother-in-law said this, because he had more integrity drunk than David did sober. And when that didn't work, David wrote a murderous letter. Sealed it. Put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle. Withdraw from him that he may be killed. Another thing about going to Israel is you get a feel for the terrain. Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. The Jordan Valley is about 1,000 feet below sea level. You cross the Jordan River in the Transjordan Valley. You cross the Jordan River to the east side of the Jordan River. I should do it this way for you, for your perspective. And it's another 2,500 feet up out of there to where Rabbah of the Ammonites is. It's 40 miles as the crow flies, but because of the descent and the ascent and the roughness of the train, the terrain. We have no idea how long it would have taken. You can look up pictures of it. Rugged terrain. And out of obedience, 
Uriah takes a letter that is his own death warrant and faithfully delivers it to Joab. Joab reads it, does exactly what he's commanded to do, puts Uriah in the hot part of the battle, and Uriah is slain. He sends a message back. As you know, the story sends a message back. Uriah is dead. We've also lost other men. And David, or Joab even told the messenger, if he asks you, why did you do this? Just tell him, Uriah is dead. David's response when he gets word that Uriah is dead. Notice, if you would, verse 24. And the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. David. A man of success, a man of spirituality, a, a man of sensitivity, a man of the scripture. This deed, think about it, adultery, lying, getting Uriah drunk. He is deceitful in what he does, he's hypocritical, and it all culminates with the adultery, it culminates in murder. And, and we're all, I'm shocked still every time I read it. David, the man after God's own heart, David, the deed. I want you to notice thirdly, though, the deception. Did you notice the very first word of our text's statement? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But. It's a contrasting conjunction. The idea is this is in contrast to what everybody else perceived. In other words, from a human perspective, David had done a really good job covering this up. As far as we know, obviously Bathsheba was partner with the adultery, but as far as we know, we have no indication that she knew how her husband had died. It's possible that she just knew he died fighting bravely. We don't even know how much Joab knew. Joab obeyed the orders, and eventually I'm sure something came out. But maybe Joab's thought was this when he got the letter and he read it. He goes, hmm, I wonder how Uriah crossed David. Okay. It was just his job, in a sense, I think about the people of Israel. They didn't know any of this, and it almost, in a sense, could have made David look good. Because here's a king, his loyal soldier dies fighting him, and I know this was the 8th, 9th century B.C. We don't do things this way nowadays, but here was a king who took the widow of a faithful soldier who died in battle and added her to his harem, and she's going to get the best life from here on out. Oh, the care of that, the compassion. I know we're sitting here saying, no, that's not right. I get that. But in a day when a harem was acceptable, it could have been viewed as a benevolent thing to do. The deception of it. But then I want you to notice the displeasure of the Lord. 
The word displeased that is used in verse number 27, but the thing that David had done, displeased the Lord, it carries with it the idea, get this, of being evil in the eyes of. It was evil. It's not the first time in the chapter we've seen the word displeased. Look back up again at verse number 25. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing... What's the word? Displeased. Same word in the English. Same word in the Hebrew. It's, David says to this messenger, Go tell Joab, Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. But God, what he saw, displeased him. Here's an important point for us as we think about the displeasure of the Lord. It doesn't matter if what a person has done doesn't displease anybody else. If it displeases the Lord, that's all that matters. But I want you to notice, fifthly, the determination of the Lord. We don't know the exact time frame from the time David sinned with Bathsheba and then all the intrigue that followed it until God confronted him in his sin through the prophet Nathan. We know that it had to be somewhere around a year because the indication is that the baby had been born. So there would have been the conception and then Bathsheba finding out she was with child, then the gestational period and then the birth of the baby and this baby was at least an infant, maybe even a toddler once God's judgment fell on David. So somewhere for an entire year, and Psalm 38 describes the misery, the conviction, even physical sickness. David even talks about a, a disease in his loins that caused him to stink. I can imagine people coming into the court, David trying to cover it up, and people saying, what's that smell? Think about this, though. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one who had graced Israel for decades now with his music, he has no song. Because the hand of God presses heavy upon him as he tries to hide his sin. And there's like this gray cloud that hangs over the palace. You ever been in a situation like that where you're in somebody's presence and you're like, something's just not right. There's a grayness, a tenseness, a quietness. But as we think about the determination of the Lord, here's what I want us to get. And this moves us from chapter 11 to chapter 12. And that is this. God loves us too much to let us continue in our sin. He loves us too much. Now, the time frame from one person to the next may be different. In David's life, it was approximately a year. But you know, I, I love seeing even the compassion of God and how he dealt with David. As far as we know, Nathan the prophet didn't know anything until this point either. And Nathan and David, as you study their lives together and their ministry, they had been close associates serving the Lord together. I can imagine even Nathan in his trips to the court would wonder, man, something just doesn't seem right. It's in the Hebrew. Something just doesn't seem right about David. What's wrong with the king? Maybe even he would ask him, David, is everything okay? And then the Lord comes to Nathan the prophet. And he said, David has sinned. Unfolds the whole thing. And he says, now I want you to go to David and here's the approach I want you to take. David, the shepherd. God knew 
how to get to David. And let me say this, it was a very merciful and a very compassionate way because what he's doing is he is drawing David out. This is one of the reasons I believe we can still call David a man after God's own heart. Not only because of all the good stuff, but even when David got wrong, he came to the point of viewing his sin as God saw his sin. I can imagine the scene. I can close my eyes. I can imagine the scene. It's a story within a story. Nathan gains entrance to the throne room. He comes in and he says, David, I have a story to tell you. And it's about sheep. Oh, David, the shepherd, I'm sure he has said, I I love sheep. I always love a good story about sheep. I remember how wonderful it was for me to get to write the 23rd Psalm and talk about the Lord being my shepherd. And Nathan said there were two men in one city, one a rich man and one a poor man. The rich man had multitudes of flocks, anything heart could want or desire. The poor man, one sheep. A little ewe lamb that sat at his table with him. He carried it in his lap at mealtime. It would eat from his plate. It would drink from his cup. He loved that little ewe lamb so much. It was like one of his daughters. He loved it so much. I can imagine David, even with what he's been hiding for a year, I can imagine him empathizing, maybe even in his mind, going back to the days when as a shepherd boy out in the Judean wilderness, he would lay down at night at the entrance into the sheepfold. And some little ewe lamb would come up and nuzzle up next to him for the night. And they would provide body heat for each other. David loved sheep. Nathan continued with the story. The rich man had a guest come to his house. And that rich man, rather than take one of his own sheep out of his abundant flocks, whether he did it himself or had a servant hop across the fence, we don't know. That rich man went and stole that one little precious ewe lamb of his poor neighbor. Slit its throat, drained its blood, skinned it, butchered it, stuck it on a skewer, and roasted that man's little ewe lamb to feed his guest. I've heard preachers preach on this passage before and they envision Nathan the prophet with his teeth gritted, juggler veins sticking out and one vein across the forehead bulging with anger. Nathan's face red with rage as he looks at David and unloads this whole story and confronts him with his sin. I personally don't believe that's the way it happened. These men were friends. Nathan was brokenhearted. Do you know who it is that gets mad in this story? It's not Nathan. The Bible says that David was enraged. I can see him with a red vein across his forehead, his juggler veins bulging, his face red with rage, and David gripping the handles of the throne and then standing up in his anger and saying, the man that hath done this shall surely die and he'll repay fourfold. And I can hear the quivering voice of Nathan 
raise an old bony finger of a prophet and say, thou art the man. David would hear Nathan go on to describe for him on behalf of the Lord, I gave you all of this. Look at everything I've given you. You could have had more if you would have asked for it. I'm paraphrasing, but instead you took the one ewe lamb of another man, the wife of another man, and you used the sword of Ammon to kill a good man to cover your sin. I love David's response. I have sinned. I want you to get something. As we know from, this is midway point of David's life. God tells David, the sword is never going to depart from your house. God put away David's sin. David's life would be spared. But as you study his history, remember the sentence he named, the man will repay fourfold, David would repay fourfold. The baby would die and go to heaven. Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah would die fourfold. Listen, get this. Our sin always affects other people. There are a million reasons why we should hate sin. One of the biggest ones is it always affects other people. You don't sin in a vacuum. I don't sin in a vacuum. No one sins in a vacuum. Other people are always affected by it. Because of God's name, Nathan the prophet would tell David, you've given great cause to the enemies of God to blaspheme. So there has to be some consequences. But I love what Psalm 103 says. He has not rewarded us after our iniquities. <laughs> That's why, and I've said this before, and here's my, I just want what I deserve. Oh, no, you don't. No, no, no. If you and I got what we deserved, we would spend an eternity in a literal place called hell. If we got we, anything this side of hell is mercy. By the way, if you're sitting here right now and you don't know Christ as Savior, you are still under the grace and the mercy of God. You have opportunity to be saved and avoid hell. Okay. I want to just close with several practical conclusions. Number one, as we think about this story of David's sin, number one, Remember this, hiding our sin never works. Never. Sin is a cancer, and it's the great physician who roots it out because he loves us. Hiding sin never works. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 20, some men's sins are open beforehand going to the judgment, but other men's sins they follow after. In other words, some people don't hide it, just it, it comes right out. They can't hide it even if they tried. But other people, even though they can hide it for a while, it is going to follow in their footsteps. It's going to come out. Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But he that confesseth and forsaketh it, I love this, shall have mercy. A second conclusion the consequences of coming clean with our sin 
are always easier than the consequences of hiding it. Or we could say it this way. It's always harder in the long run to hide your sin than it is to come clean with it. There may be consequences. There may be scars. There may be effects. There may be ramifications. But deal with it now. Thirdly, the longer you wait, the longer I wait, the harder it is to come out with it. So deal with it right away. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My mom is visiting with us here this morning. She's leaving on Wednesday with the three kids to go to Aruba. And I was reminded of a story years ago. We were trot line fishing on a big lake in uh, Missouri, in the next county over where my dad and mom live right now. Trot line fishing, and as dad reached over, we were pulling in, and I mean that night we had brought in a bunch of big old catfish. I think the, probably the smallest one that night was 18 inches long. We had a bunch of them, and we would clean for a while the next day too. All these catfish coming in, and occasionally some other fish too, and as dad reached over the edge of the boat to pull in the trot line, a big old catfish that was on one of those leaders with a big old treble hook on the uh, end of the leader shook the hook and there was tension on it and that treble hook buried in the fleshy part between his thumb and his finger. Okay, and I'm not going to try and gross anybody out this morning. Okay. But it buried right there. And so dad's like, oh, we got to go home. So we snipped the leader off, just tangled everything in there, got the boat loaded up, went home. And a dad said, I'm going to have to get home and Mom can get it out. Well, it took us half an hour to get everything loaded up, 45 minutes home. And then we get home. Dad walks in. He goes, Elsie, you're going to have to take this treble hook out. Mom looked at it. She goes, mm, no. So dad looked at me. I was 16 years old at the time. I will never forget the work that it was because so much time had elapsed to run that hook the rest of the way through past the barb. You mean to gross you out? Okay. By the way, when we cover our sins, it's gross. I had to take a knife and press the tissue down around the point, Doc, to get it up past the barb so I could take a pair of side cutters and cut the barb off and then back the, the hook back out. And the whole time, Dad's just sitting there white as a sheet like he's about to pass out. You know what I thought about? Right there in the boat. Have you ever shot yourself with a nail gun before? The best thing to do is jerk it out right then. My father-in-law years ago had a guy on a job site run a sheet metal screw into his thumb. And the, the, my father-in-law said, listen, let me just back it out right now with this DeWalt drill. And the guy said, no, 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 I got to go to the emergency room. My father-in-law said, you don't want to do that. He said, no, 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 I'll take it out. So after about three hours of waiting, and then this tiny little nurse that weighed about 110 pounds taking a screwdriver and a quarter turn at a time, backing that sheet metal screw out of his thumb, he came back later and he said, Bill, I wish I'd let you take it out. Zip! It is zipped right out, that DeWalt drill. Deal with it right away. Because of the tissue being soft, we could have run that hook through, snipped it off, backed it out, and kept fishing for crying out loud. Fourthly, and this is a great follow-up. 
I love the psalm that says, there is forgiveness with the Lord. There is pardon with the Lord. There is mercy with the Lord. Abundant grace, deep mercy, precious redemption. So high the price he paid. The nails, the cross, the grave. Such favor he bestowed. Such grace he showed. Oh, what a sacrifice. So that I don't have to be in debt for my sin anymore. Grace, mercy, pardon, redemption. Fifthly and finally, I want you to get this. The high price paid for our sin by our God through the finished work of Christ and the character of our God that has provided the only way to deal with our sin that is perfectly consistent with His holiness and a beautiful expression of His love and His grace and His mercy and His pardon. The plan that He has set in place, the price that has been paid, rich and full and free and abundant, no man or woman here can earn, but is only available through grace. The price that has been paid, get this, sets you and me free to be completely transparent about our sin. Why? Because it's already paid for. It's already paid for. It's the same as thumb in my nose. In the wonderful plan of forgiveness and redemption that God has provided when I try and keep my sin hid for my own reputation. Or whatever my motive may be. But because of what Jesus has done, I can come clean. David would say in Psalm 51, and in Psalm 32, mine iniquity have I not hid. And the, the idea of the verb is there's an intensity. He's like, I'm just coming clean with everything. God, here it is. You desire truth in the inward parts. I'm coming clean. You already know that it's there anyway. But if we're going to get this thing completely fixed, I'm going to be completely transparent with you about it. And with others. Deal with your sin. There may be consequences, but again, any consequences that have to come out in this life are nothing, nothing compared to the consequences that come with trying to pass this life hiding your sin because it will eventually come out. Well, but Jesus paid it all. The sin debt's paid. I've been studying the life of Christ. I'm, I'm bringing the airplane in for landing, okay? I want you to think me about this, all right? Have you ever noticed how sinners were comfortable in Jesus' presence? Now, they'd cut a wide swath around the Pharisees because those Pharisees had created a class looking down their nose, people that weren't like them. But the Bible said that the common people heard Jesus gladly. <laughs> that publicans and sinners, Jesus ate with them. Ate with publicans and sinners that a Pharisee wouldn't even get close to for fear that his holiness would be defiled. Jesus had an altogether different kind of holiness that he wants to communicate to you and to me, and that's a contagious holiness. 
I understand associations. I understand the, the Bible doctrine of separation. Okay, I, I get that. I get that. And that there needs to be a difference. But something that fascinates me about Jesus is that harlots could come into his presence. Now get this, get this. They weren't comfortable in their sin, but they were comfortable with Jesus. And Jesus didn't tolerate their sin, but he loved them as a sinner. John chapter number 5, when he healed the lame man, he said to him, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. He said to the woman taken in adultery in John chapter number 8, where are your accusers? I have no man, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't tolerate sin, but in some powerful way, sinners were comfortable in Jesus' presence and coming clean with their sin. I have so far to go. But I want people to be, as I become more and more like Christ, I want people who are dealing with stuff to be comfortable in my presence. I want to be like Jesus. We've been set free to be transparent about our sin. Whether you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior and you're face to face with the reality that you're still bearing the burden and the guilt of your sin, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago Jesus paid for that. You don't have to carry the debt of that anymore. Jesus paid for it. And he offers forgiveness. He offers deliverance. He offers his righteousness so that you can have access to heaven. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm like, why would anybody want to refuse that? If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, Paul said today's the day of salvation. Today. Believers, the blood that he shed 2,000 years ago is still sufficient to wash away sin. The price that was paid sets me free to be transparent. I close with this story. Another story. You like stories? I don't remember where I heard it or read it, but an evangelist was preaching years ago, I believe in California, late 18, early 1900s. He had been saved out of a background of criminal activity, wickedness, profligacy, and not to glorify sin, he had not said a lot about it in his preaching. He had mentioned it in passing and in generalities. One day he was getting up to preach and a man from his past was in the audience. As the story goes, he wrote a note and had an usher deliver it to the preacher before he got up to preach. We preachers always love it when we get notes like that right before we get up to preach. <laughs> an usher delivered the note to the evangelist. The note from the man from the past, a man who knew about all the wickedness, all the criminal activity. The note said this, I'm going to stand up in the middle of your sermon tonight and I'm going to expose you. Signed his name. As the story goes, the evangelist got up and he said, folks, before I get into the message tonight, I just want to tell you something. He said, there's a man in this audience tonight who knew me before I knew Christ. 
He knew all the criminal activity. He knew all the wickedness and the sin that I was in before I met Jesus Christ years ago. He said, I want you to know he has all kinds of things he could tell you about what I used to be. And there are some things I could tell you that he doesn't even know. <laughs> he said, I want you to know that Jesus paid for all those. Everything that man would say is true. I did those things. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross and paid for my sin, and he set me free, and I can be transparent about it. The story of David's sin. You know, somebody might say, well, I've never done anything like David's done. Do you know one of the blessings of this story? Is we can draw this conclusion, too. If God can take care of and deal with David's sin, as bad as it was, he can take care of anything in between. Might be bitterness. Might be a lust problem. Might be a gossip problem, a tongue problem. Secret sin that nobody in here knows about but you and God. It may be a sin that others do know about. Maybe a family sin. But I want you to know, just come clean with it. Because coming clean with it is far better than continuing to try to hide it. Jesus paid it all. Let's deal with our sin. Father, thank you. Thank you for the work of Christ on a cross. I thank you for your grace, Lord, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, and for your pardon. Lord, you already know the truth. Anything that anybody may be trying to hide, you already know it. And you're working, just like you did in David's life, to draw us out so that we'll come clean with our sin. The piano's going to begin to play with our